Hi, everyone. I'm Salma Karashi. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Research Podcast. Today is September 23rd, 2021, and we are back to an in-person format, which is really exciting. For those of you watching on our video cast, I will appear missing from the video feed because we're trying out some new stuff. Um, but otherwise, I am here, and we're here with Doug Nitz who is Professor and Chair of the Department of Cognitive Science at UCSD, where he also serves as the Chair of Scientific Review at the Sanford Institute for Compassion and Empathy. Hi, Doug. Hi. So um, the NITS lab works on the neural basis of spatial cognition, decision-making, and episodic memory. His uh, research gets at how and where spatial knowledge is organized and used during navigation in um, specifically rodent models in your lab, I guess. The lab tests uh, an array of spatial behaviors and examines the dynamics of neural activity taken from a broad network of areas that include hippocampal, CA1, subicular complex, as well as premotor and retrosplenial and posterior parietal cortex. So we have a neural basis of navigation expert group today with Isabel Musio. Hi, Isabel. Hello. <laughs> and we've got Francesco Savelli. Hey, Francesco. Hi. And of course, Charlie Wilson, whose expertise is just transcendent. Covers all things. Hi. So um, I was hoping we could just talk generally today about the how and why of, of computing spatial relationships in multiple reference frames at once, um, specifically with respect to the evidence uh, for how representations for subspaces are built in neural space uh, relative to a whole environment. So how we get from like the metrics of grid cells in, in this GPS system to like you know building sort of larger understandings of um, of, of the environment and the role of, of navigating path what what how pathways and local sort of contributions sort of are built into into mm -hmm. um, global representation so. This relates specifically to, I mean, you've done a lot of work on the sort of local and global part of things, and I, it, it specifically um, reminds me of this, of the retrosplenial cortex paper that you, that you uh, guys did in 2017. So mm -hmm. could you sort of set up this idea of local and global for us in, um, across this network as much as you can, and we'll get started there, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, local and global, I'd say, in the field kind of, in terms of the, the terms that used to be used, kind of mapped onto this idea of an allocentric space, which was almost always conceived of as the, the boundaries of the observable environment, versus egocentric uh, space, space relative to the animal, which in most cases in the field meant the sequences of their, of their actions as they move through space. Um, and so, nat naturally enough, those you know those are two key kinds of of frames of reference. The egocentric being the more local, you would say, um, but um, both a little bit um, limiting in the sense that allocentric space just means any external space that's not defined by the sensory organs of the animal, not defined, for example, by how something hits the retina. Um, and then egocentric space should be egocentric spaces. Um, so as the monkey literature uh, will, will show you across these different subregions of posterior parietal, 
cortex, there's locations of targets relative to the hand, relative to the eyes, relative to the head, and the head and the eyes relative to the, the trunk. And there's, there's lots of different spaces that kind of break down into allocentric and egocentric, naturally enough. Um, and then into local and, and then into local and global, I suppose. The global usually means the boundaries of the observable environment. Um, but I think the important thing there is that sometimes those boundaries don't really exist as something you see. And sometimes I think we don't, we see wonderful things like grid cell patterns across a large environment. And we sometimes forget a little bit that the grid pattern that we see in our, in our images and so forth, it doesn't actually exist. But it's never there all at once in the, in the brain. Um, and so we sort of perceive it that way. And so I just think, you know, at this, this point, a deeper level of thought about spaces and an opening up to all the different kinds of spaces that there are and what they mean is, is really interesting. So, you know, good example of that is, is Bell's work looking at the structure of environments. Um, and um, a lot of work that's come out recently looking at um, distance and orientation relationships relative to objects which in most of these experiments should probably re be referred to as landmarks. They're rather large relative to the animal and they're out in the space. So the field's kind of taking a turn in the right direction, I think. Um, and so for me, I'll try not to hog all the conversation, but for me it started in you know, 2006 with this idea that the, the prior cortex could map a location in a route and that it wasn't dependent on the actions of the animal and it wasn't dependent on the visual input to the animal, that it was really this sort of rather abstract concept of a, a shape that I'm moving through. And so, you know, when I think most fantastically about the meaning of my work, I think it's kind of it goes from a nitty-gritty neuroscience, neuroscience, but all the way up to the idea of, oh, this is how a concept is built. There is this shape that I run through that I never see all at once, but I understand what it is. If I'm a human, I can draw it on a piece of paper and, and translate it. I build a concept. And so the spatial mapping is, is an opportunity to to do that, right? To kind of go after concept formation. Yeah. You can so tell I come from a cognitive science department you, now. You mentioned like things that aren't not there all the time. Like at any one moment, mm -hmm. the brain has something. So one of the things I think about with a concept is that it it's out of time. The concept exists uh, without moment to moment changes. But if the animal is, is running on a path 
and then and a neuron, we'd look at it, we'd look at the data and we can see, oh, the neuron fired in this part of the path, and this part of the path, and that part of the path. But at any one moment, the, the, the animal was just in this part of the path, and only the neurons that fire at that part of the path are the only ones firing. Right. So, I mean, you triggered it when you said that all of that stuff that people see, like the grids and the grid cells, they're not all there at any one moment. And so I wonder, what, what is there all the time that we could make a concept out of that doesn't, isn't constantly changing as we move around? Right, what is there? That's, that's where the computational neuroscientists need to come in <laughs> to some extent. You know, there's a, the study that was, that was published a while back, a few years ago, where the animal goes through a semicircle path or through a full circle path, a full circle path being quite a bit longer. And these neurons in the septal nucleus do not have spatial tuning, uh, but the firing activity of, of those neurons relative to the ongoing 8 hertz oscillation in the brain uh, exhibits what we call phase precession. As it proceeds through this, through this space, the firing of the neurons moves from late phases of this theta rhythm to early phases. And the thing for me is that it does that for the short path and for the long path once. It phase processes once. So if the long path is twice as long, it doesn't phase process twice, which means the rate of phase precession has changed. And that has to happen at the beginning, before you take off on the path. So, so yeah, no, I desperately want to know what, it, well, I mean, that's what really is there exciting. that what is there that can drive that change in the rate of phase precession. Whatever that is, is 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 the aspect of the system as a whole that yeah, I was that, thinking that respects the whole thing. I don't know if that's in a form of connectivity between neurons or probabilities of transitions between firing activity patterns. Um, that's a real problem for neuroscience. But that's but the thing you just gave is really great because it's a invariance. The concept is I'm halfway through this path or I'm all the way through the path and it doesn't matter what the path is, halfway is still halfway. So that's kind of invariance is what creates the things that we normally think of as generalizations and concepts. Right. It seems like that's really cool. And I thought there was something like that in your work where there are cells that fire you know, in the first half of the path and then they'll fire in the last half and another mm -hmm. set of cells that have that in reverse and then cells that are firing four times during the path right. and presumably eight times. And mm -hmm. uh, so you could create a sort of uh, informational by looking at all of them you could you could locate that you could always in because in a sort of Fourier yeah exactly this kind of way yeah and, and so that but that requires uh, that those cells don't care how long the path is just what one whole transit is right they have to somehow be normalized for the concept of that the, the, the problem is, and I didn't mention this during my talk, is that those, that periodicity is context-dependent. 
So if you have a neuron that fires at half intervals along along one shaped pathway, it doesn't necessarily fire at half intervals on another one. What would it um, do in the other one? It might not it have, have a periodicity. It might not have a periodicity, or it might have a periodicity of different frequency. When you say so, a different context, are you talking the same shape but a different context or different shape? Different, in my case, uh, both, actually. Um, so running the, the same shape through a different space in an environment, so moving the, the mm -hmm. location of this pathway to a different space, um, but also running a different shape essentially through the same environment, um, different shape through the same environment, but those two um, pathways uh, share a subset of the locations that you move through in the room, and even that makes... So those recordings were in the retrosplenial cortex, correct? Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about the studies done with human patients and virtual environments. I think uh, Russell Epstein did these studies in which uh, he saw activity in retrosplenial cortex only through paths the virtual environment had locked doors and open doors. And when the subjects were thinking about the open doors, so there were possible pathways that they could mm -hmm. transverse, then they saw activity in the retrosplenial cortex. So I wonder whether that of that activity is a mapping of the transversible space that the animal can afford, you know, to move on. Right, the affordances. The affordances of the space. Is that? Is there any evidence? Or have you put blocks in that? When you see this, um, the sequences of activity, have you tested putting blocks in those environments like you did in the original experiment to see if that activity is altered? I haven't. Um, I haven't done that. I was kind of hoping to do that in a different way. Oh. Um, I was kind of hoping to take the circular track, which is useful because it doesn't really have a, a repeating structure except the full cycle, uh -huh. right? Or infinitely if you want to take any, any single period from another. Um, but uh, to impose um, hurdles, just little hurdles. It doesn't have to be much, just enough that the animal has to change its gait, has to know exactly where they are, and to see if I could impose uh, something, impose a, a periodicity um, to try to to try to get at whether the periodicity has something to do with the literal structure. Mm -hmm. Uh, that they move through, or has something to do with their with their actions, mm -hmm. um, and so yeah, no, that's a really interesting problem. Certainly, I watch, I follow Russell Epstein's work pretty pretty closely. I wanted to ask you a question because during your talk uh, at the very end, you showed some slides that you couldn't, didn't have time to present, but it seemed to me... Because everybody was talking. Yes, I know. <laughs> we were so excited to have you in no, person for the first time that everybody was asking questions, me included, so I apologize for that. 
but I apologize. Uh, that was uh, people have, you know, the Hassan Molab and your student have shown these egocentric boundary cells that uh, fire in, uh, in relation to the borders and the direction of the animal. And mm -hmm. I thought that you were showing that you have found object egocentric firing as well in one of the slides. I don't know if I... It was in you posterior went, parietal cortex. It was in posterior parietal cortex, I think. One of the last ones, or not? In relation, did you have something that the cells were firing in an egocentric manner relative to the objects that were in the environment? This was the, vis the pursuit, the target pursuit. No. Uh, well, if, if, if you want to consider the, the, the light that's flashed down on the, on the platform that the animal pursues to be an object of some sort, and maybe that's reasonable, um, then, then yes, posterior parietal cortex does map that out pretty, pretty nicely. Mm -hmm. um, explicitly, if I'm remembering right from what I, Andy Alexander told me about his egocentric boundary cell work, the egocentric boundary cells uh, differentiate between boundaries and objects. Um, and this was also true for the, uh, the data from the Moser laboratory, the mouse medial entorhinal cortex object vector cells. It was a, in their work, a completely separate population of cells from border or boundary um, cells that have been talked about from the same laboratory and others like the lever laboratory. They're kind of separate entities. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll see where that goes. I don't know. I am doing experiments right now where objects are moved around in an environment, so I'll be able to tell you mm -hmm. a year or two from now whether the posterior parietal cortical cells really respond to objects or landmarks an environment, um, but but yeah, the location of the the location of the pursuit target, this light that's moving around on the floor, relative to the animal, um, was definitely built into the parietal activity, and some hints at that were already actually out there in the literature from Rebecca Burwell's laboratory, um, where her her environment visually is is often characterized by these. Um, I forget how the system works, but it it uh, creates images that can show up on the floor. The environment can be moved from time period to time period. And so she's seeing some responses like that as well. Yeah. And, and a follow up of this question is that we always, you know, whoever is working on navigation, we focus a lot on. Uh, excitatory cells and you know especially for the spatial properties but there is a paper by the Mosers that suggests that at least some subpopulations of GABAergic cells seem to go information about boundaries. I don't recall now if it's the parvalbumin cells or the somatostatic because they, they differentiate between the two. So in your recordings in other brain regions have you found that cells other than the excitatory cells Code some aspects of boundaries or or 
or the environment or egocentric cell, boundary vector oh. cells or something? So, yes. So, in the, in the, in the cortex, you're recording kind of blindly. So, you know, what's an excitatory cell and what's an inhibitory cell, at least in my recordings, is not really known to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's going to change soon with all the powerful new tools that are out there. But the very fast firing neurons separate themselves as a category of neurons. And in parietal cortex, they, they tend to do very similar, tend to have very similar firing patterns um, as to the excitatory cells, just a lot faster. Mm -hmm. um, but in the hippocampus, in the CA1 region, and in the subiculum, and in the dentate gyrus, we, we had a 2007 paper where we showed that hippocampal interneurons have place fields. And well, Frank also has a paper showing that they have a spatial tuning, so it's quite yeah. interesting because in the it field it's not so discussed. Yeah. Uh, it, it comes and it goes. Interneurons and their spatial tuning seems to come and yeah. go every 10 years or so. <laughs> I went to the meeting with that data and I thought, oh, I did this cool thing. And then uh, Bill Skaggs came up to me and said, oh, that's really, that's really cool. But you know, there's five other people presenting interneurons <laughs> place fields. It's just this horrible coincidence. Um, and, but suffice to say, for interneurons in the hippocampus, there are what you'd call positive place fields where the rate increases reliably over a space that when you average it out across neurons looks like the size of, of a place cell's excitatory field uh, from the same dorsal ventral level of, of hippocampus. And then because most of these neurons are firing on average at 20 hertz or so, you can actually see um, sort of kind of reverse or inverse place fields where their activity drops to zero in a particular location uh, reliably um, and um, it's, it's like a reverse it's like a reverse place field and has the same size as the, the CA1 excitatory cell I suspected if it was yeah. participating by disinhibition and helping that Cells. Right. So I think for a, a place cell, it's as much about its excitatory inputs as lacking an inhibitory input at the same time. And but so that the, the aspect where the fields are the same size and more or less the same shape that really impressed me. And um, we built that into we built that into a model of, of hippocampus that I get, did with a guy named Jeff Critchmar, who's at UC Irvine now, but we were together at the Neurosciences Institute um, back then, and we built that kind of sculpting according to inhibitory cells into, into the model, and it really made a huge difference in, the, in, our, hippocampal, in our hippocampal model. Stabilized it and just um, made the spatial tuning much more precise. So, 
today you were talking about when you started your talk, um, you brought up the idea of the cognitive map. And originally, when people, you know, with O'Keefe and Nadal, people were thinking about the hippocampus. But now we know, and you mentioned this today, that the cognitive map is is involves many brain regions. So, would you like to discuss what you th if you think that? Different brain regions contributing are contributing different aspects. How is this cognitive map built in the brain, and what is the contribution, at least, of the regions that you are studying? Yeah, um, that's not too hard, is it? Yeah, it's a very broad question. A sub question. To you that. can take so, the question if you want. It's like, no, I'm not going to answer that question. But, like, but um, you know, but just to um, kind of add something to that question, so. You know, O'Keefe and Nadell in that book, they, if I remember correctly the terminology, they distinguish between what they call locale. I don't even know actually how it's pronounced, but it's written with a local, with an E at the end, you know, locale, mm -hmm. and taxon. Uh, so one is the idea of the cognitive map, kind of what, the way Tolman talked about it, so this allocentric representation of space, which is, you know, what we talked about you know, and place cells. So the idea of place cell, going back to the idea of concept, right? You know, what is invariant? What to a first approximation, path equivalence, right? So, but then of course there is a lot of modulation in place cells about path, you know, which is your study works. But you know, the first idea of the phenomenon is that place cells can be modulated by a lot of variables, but in, you know, the idea is that when the rat goes back to the same place, the cell fires again, whatever circuitous, you know, tortuous, path has happened. So that's the beauty of it, is like how does the brain do it? And then, so this idea, okay, you have an allocentric map that allows you, for example, to take shortcuts through an explored environment, which was the idea of Tom. Then it's okay, there's this taxon system, which is more about like, you know, navigating mazes and paths. And they, and if I remember correctly, they say, okay, this is a different system, probably taken care of by the different um, part of the brain. And that's why I was like, I'm a, such a big fan of you know your work and you know that 2006 paper because it was so nobody knows what is this other system. I don't know that we know much about what this other system would be, and we know little. But to me, it was always like, well, is what Doug is doing is it after the taxon? So like these paths, these progress, you know, these these cells that you found in uh, posterior parietal cortex that are neither egocentric nor allocentric, but they are, you know, you call them in your, in your, in your papers, route-centric, meaning like, you know, they just track this progress of the path. Is that the taxon? Did you find the taxon? Scott, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think of the taxon as a, like a, well, that's what a, distance, just, a distance from a landmark that you're, trying to approach, but the, there's no reason why that line can't be bent and be considered a route at yeah, that, routes. At that so, like, point. Is this a but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's, it's a taxon in the sense of being ego-centric, where you solve, the, you solve the problem of getting to something by just uh, approaching and keeping it in a certain egocentric relationship to you. I'm okay. moving toward this Landmark. I don't need to know where I am in the world. Okay. Right. So when you, so route centric, I would just 
I would consider to be allocentric in this sense, which just means other centric, not egocentric. Yeah. Just uh, not with respect to a, you know X Y Cartesian reference frame, but the progress along a particular route. The progress along a particular okay. route. So I wouldn't. But anyways, I wouldn't say I discovered a new. Well, you know, I'm asking. So the, the point is okay. So maybe not to say that, but just more to emphasize a different kind of of space. Yeah. One that doesn't relate to boundaries. Yeah. So that's exactly uh, the point. So maybe let's put away the terminology and everything. But uh -huh. um, so yeah, this is a different system. Very different. It's not the cognitive map the way that it was originally intended. I mean, it's a cognitive map in the sense, okay, you know, other, you know, in cognitive science, for example, where, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, cognitive map was used, um, uh, you know, I think about, you know, for example, Benjamin Kuyvers, who um, mm -hmm. actually I work with, you know, there was any kind of spatial information that you have in your mind to actually navigate even mazes and routes, actually. Mm -hmm. But in, in the tradition of, you know, Placel and, um, you know, O'Keefe and Adele, I always thought, okay, cognitive map is something different from this system that you're, that you're investigating. Um, and it so that, yeah, the question is like, okay, well, how maybe the two things come together? Because, you know, again, we go back to this idea of Placels and Gritzels being uh, GPS, right? You know, I always say, what's well, not GPS? It's like, it fragments when you have boundaries. It's not really a perfect allocentric map that encompasses all the systems. So it's like, how, I mean, are these two systems coming together in some way? Or you, you study a lot the commonalities of, you know, see place, you know, hippocampal cells and uh, cortical cells. And I just think they're part of the same thing. Okay. I think they're part of the same thing, really. I think that what happens is we we put the animals in these environments that are open and fully surrounded by a boundary, and then that that becomes the space that we can find activity, and that becomes the space that's relevant to to the animal when they're in there. And so we see the map in that form, but we kind of fool ourselves a little bit into thinking it's this two-dimensional map that is that is metric, right? There was just this paper published in uh, was it Tins, uh, John Rookerman, Elizabeth Buffalo, Lisa Giacomo, that's saying even this universal map, the grid cell map in the entorhinal cortex, is really topological. And there's a lot of other things that are consistent with that, not the least of which is when the animal's running on pathways through an environment, the grid map is no longer a grid map. Right. It's gone. It doesn't... Well, you know, but the issue is... Um, so there is a system there that somehow is able to parse space. However, you know, not in a perfect way, but is able to kind of break up space in regular distances. And these regular distances have no relationship whatsoever with external landmarks, because even if they did, there are so many grids you right. know, that the brain is producing. Of course, it's the grids that we see after we make the rate map and everything, but you know, they are different cells. So this is 
somehow internally calculated. Yes, yes. So and, you have a system that's metric in the sense that you can update yourself in this grid cell network according to self-motion, and it seems somewhat at least metric in that way in the short term. Right. Right? But right. I think the, 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 the question is, what's that for? If you say, what, what information do you get out of the entheronal cortex in a, right. a grid cell network, I think you know the most reasonable thing is, is to say that the only thing that really matters and that can really influence the rest of the brain over some long period or over some period of time is a relatively short period, maybe a few seconds. I mean, the, that's what I mean when I say the grid pattern firing over the entire environment. That doesn't really exist in any way in the brain because only little snippets of that are transmitted to other brain regions. Well, moment there is moment. So there are population of grids. So some models, for example, they postulate, I don't know if they're right, but they postulate actually there is a grid in the neural system with pumps of activity that are equally spaced and it moves in lockstep with the animal. So if you're recording from one neuron, that also looks like a grid when you're on a rate map because of the way the, um, the structure is imparted on that particular neuron. So I don't know, that's just one model. Right? The, all the other models have more or less implicitly kind of calculate, um, produce that phenomenon. So, um, so a lot of cells at the same time, they might, well at least probably they, they signal position. Then the issue is like whether, how the brain might use, if at all, these um, regular distances that they get expressed at some point in the grid system. But, you know, that's a big question about it. I don't think anybody... I so think lots that's, of ideas I think that's that the most knows. interesting... Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the most interesting right. question, though, because to the extent that it's a universal map, it's really not a very good map at all. It, <laughs> it's, it's like you're trying to get around... It's like I got, I got a map and uh, trying to use the same map for five different map. environments. Yeah. It's not very... It's not going to work. Yeah, so I think that like the shorter term, I've I've gone out this far, and then over this way, this distance. I think that's what we we get out of that. And so yeah, I mean, just like why and how and yeah, right. Which is maybe explains why you know the uh, the the like with with Brandon they um, do the lesion of the medial entheronal cortex and in the CA1 region there's still place specific activity what's gone is the the phase procession yeah but what's uh, gone is usually the, the phase procession it's sort of like the more short term how much space have i moved right how much space have i how much space have i moved through i think yeah. that's the magic of the of the grid cell network yeah so in large environments, lesions of MEC uh, brings significant disruption, or pharmacology and activation, significant disruption on place field formation of place cells. So it's just there's also these things about novelty versus familiarity. It seems like when you really look at the nitty-gritty details, somehow the place cell system relies on grid cells much more during novelty than 
um, than doing you know familiar conditions. If by the line you mean like you know making a nice place feel, which you know mm -hmm. we like nice place feels because we like to look, like it, who knows whether the brain even cares about it, but. You know, in, uh, as long as we, you know, consider a normal place cell system like making nice place fields in a large novel environment, if you disrupt the entorhinal cortex, you do have significant disruption of places. So there's also that. It's like, why is it that um, the grid cell system seems to be more necessary in a large novel environment? So maybe because in a large novel environment, you cannot rely on landmarks because you haven't mapped the landmarks yet. yet. So you need some path integration in order to put the landmarks on your whatever internal representation. So I don't know, that's my, always been my pet theory, but I don't know if that's I'm trying right. to see the relationship between that, your, what you're saying and Isabel's original question. And, and I, I get it. So I, I think I just get it anyway. <laughs> so That's good. Uh, <laughs> when, when we ask people who work on navigation or on um, the con concepts related to space and how the brain uh, works on them, they always give you an answer that is some little fragment. And you say, you know, I've got place cells. You say, yeah, but how does that get you the concept of space? Yeah. They go, well, it's definitely going to be part of this. Can it help? And you go, yeah, I think that's right. I think that would help. No, it just follows that you do have a concept. Uh, it follows that you have a concept of space. It doesn't mean that you've got your finger yeah. on that. So then you, you ask somebody else, you ask somebody that works on grid cells, and they'll st start telling you how grid cells do some contribution. But you ask, is that the thing? And they, well, no, but it is, but it's part of it. Pretty sure that's part of it. You, yeah. And then, and, yeah. right, and, and then you it turns out. Posterior parietal. That's right. <laughs> and so th there are a bunch of things that have been identified that I think could possibly say, be said to be part of the solution. Uh, maybe you're, you're more uh, hesitant about going no, I'm not hesitant. I think they're all, I think they're all relevant. We're, we're, I, I feel like sometimes we're trying to, to jam spatial cognition for your, spatial cognition for your environment into one fixed, uh -huh. into one fixed idea. I think if we just think a little bit about our own experience, I think that's not really true at all. I think sometimes when we're conceiving our space, we're not really thinking necessarily about space at all. We might just be thinking about directional relationships. This highway goes off in this direction, and this one goes off in this direction. And yes, there's a there's a spatial component that's implied by the angle between them, but it's kind of a murky idea, isn't it? And the only thing that you need to know is I need to go that way, or I need to turn from going this direction to going that direction, right? I don't necessarily need to know where I am in some bounded space. I might just need to know, oh, that landmark's there and that landmark's there, so my target is there. And so you're, you're solving the problem different ways at all times. I think all these things are going on in the brain, and we keep trying to we keep trying to jam it into one system that operates in some rigid way all the time. And I think it's 
Well, that's our job. Naturally, we have, we like, have the brain is much more human. We have some set that. of observations, and we're hoping that they explain everything. And so we always try to phrase it so it sounds like they do. We get but, a little too computational. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. The, as Gerald Edelman reminded me several times, the brain is not an equation. Um, so it's a it, bunch of equations. It's, maybe it's a bunch of <laughs> equations and different ones at different <laughs> times. And so this distributed cognitive map maps out those relationships in different ways, in different places. Um, and they're all integrated to some extent, but not necessarily in any rigid way where you can say this is how it is from brain to brain, from person to person, or from rat to rat. Um, well, equations, at least I don't know, the equations I know is like they're good at modeling change or something that already exists. Like it's just a varying change in a differential equation. So you already have to put the variable there. So you have to have already like specified something. But the brain, I mean, is that enough to understand the brain though? Because, you know, the brain, do we want to, you know, does it create stuff like a concept? So can you capture that with the, how do you capture that with a system of equations? Because if the concept is not there to begin with, it's like something that emerged, then there's, you know, you have to decide on a set of variables. So that's kind of like, a, I mean, that's kind of like the, the idea of, you know, trying to understand maybe the basis of combination in a way. And uh, um, I don't know. So that's just. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. concepts do emerge. So you have a bunch of paths that, you know, Manhattan streets and avenues crisscrossing, what emerges from that naturally are blocks. There's a thing called blocks. Yeah. Um, yeah. And northwest corners of yeah. them, all these things. We yeah, we recognize those features, you know, they make kind of a right. pattern, re right. recurring useful pattern that somehow becomes a concept. So yeah, does that so mean we, that there's no hope of finding a brain substrate of any concept? like? I mean, wouldn't we, if we're going to give up on that, maybe we should give up on it and like quit putting all the money into it and stuff that we do. Are, are we well, I don't know that that much money goes into it. But then, <laughs> I don't know. Most of the money goes into like very nitty gritty, computationally <laughs> simple things. <laughs> Sorry. No, I'm, not, I'm not bitter, I promise. But, the, but I think, you know, when we. I think when the the concept, as it were, eventually finds its way into some kind of symbolic system, like a word, right? And we can we can find some neuron that that seems to reflect only that in its activity. Then we're all of a sudden we're sort of satisfied. Um, Satisfied with that, so the what was it like the Jennifer Aniston cell in the yeah. hippocampus of of humans, right? Doesn't fire at anything else. It's the Jennifer Aniston concept cell, and finally, you know, we get 
been quiet for thousands of years of evolution. (laughs) 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 But then, yeah, got a lot of attention eventually. Um, Yeah, so I think as scientists sometimes that's what we're kind of looking for because if you say, if you say, oh, I, I say this parietal mapping of position in a route is, is evidence that the, you know, the animal has this concept of route, which I stand by. Right? But you're right, at any given moment, it's a different pattern of activity. Right? So I have to say, oh, it's all these patterns of activity. All of these are consistent with this one concept. So now I have to think that there, I have to, in some sense, posit this, this notion that all these patterns of activity are capable of driving some neuron that is, represents that, uh, that, I guess that I concept, and maybe that's a little I think that's something a little, I think a little bit less profound than that. So that what we're used to with place cells is we think, this cell's firing, so that means the animal is there. So if I really only knew about that cell and it was firing, of course the brain knows about all the cells, but if I just knew about that cell, I would know something fairly concrete about where the animal is. Mm-hmm. But if, but less so with a, if the cell had a, a, a sequence of places it fires along a path, so in that case, I would have to look at more than one cell if I was the brain, mm-hmm. because now the, this cell fires at this point, and this point, and this point, and this cell also fires at this point, but not at that point. And so by seeing that they're different, I could tell, mm-hmm. you know. And of course, in a continuously varying thing like the result you get where cells speed up and slow down a continuous way along the path, then you think about things like frequency components or, or something like that out of that mm-hmm. thing. Building blocks. And so in, in that case, the it's not that big of a difference, actually, to go from a system where individual cells tell you a lot, uh, but you still have to look at them all because animals can move around, or ones where you're always looking at all of them right. in order to tell that answer. Right. It's not that different. It's yeah. harder for us because as experimentalists we can't reconstruct what mm-hmm. the whole network is mm-hmm. doing for right. the data We're that we have. To it. Yeah. But it's not harder for, if we imagine that we could know that. It wouldn't make the system harder to grok because it's not that different. So I don't know. I, I guess yeah, no, it's, I'm trying to be a little bit more optimistic about about how we could use our data to understand some of that stuff. And I still think that it's possible to address that Isabel's question about how how distributed a concept could be, and we would still think the brain could use it as a concept. I mean, why couldn't a bunch of parts of the brain be contributing different parts? And do we need a an overall observer is looking at all of that stuff to interpret, or could it just be embedded in all those places at once and be enough to control behavior and mm-hmm. create our experience? Yeah. I think it's embedded, and I think our appreciation of it, I think it's embedded, and I think our appreciation of it comes 
piecemeal, right? And it's not necessarily that we have it all in our minds all at the same time. But I, I think something that makes it, can make it anyways, a little bit less piecemeal is hierarchy. So as you move across the dorsal to ventral axis of the hippocampus, it's said that the, the place fields of neurons get larger. And that for grid cells, the, the space between nodes on the grid grows larger. I think that for place cells of the hippocampus, I think we more need more data on that. That's really just from a couple of studies, which are fine enough. I don't mean to doubt them at all, but it hasn't been studied that well. Um, but I think if you have this hierarchy, right, now you have neurons that are active. The idea is you have neurons that are active over the full space of the environment. They're still place-specific. If your environment was 10 times bigger, you'd see that. Um, but it's not, and so this neuron is active over the whole space, and on top of that builds in all these other neurons that become active over smaller spaces within it. So that concept of a of a hierarchy is perhaps useful. And that's where Actually, Russell well, comes in again. Russell yeah. Epstein just I saw that work. Go ahead. Actually, talk about that. we have about the, the the tuning of the ventral cells. We did one of the studies that shows that. But what it was interesting is that when you try to decode the position of the animal, looking at the population of active cells, even though the fields are much broadly tuned when you move to the ventral pole, uh, you get precise decoding in the ventral hippocampus, the same decoding that you get when you are recording from dorsal cells. So I thought they work like sensory systems, right? When you look at the sensory receptors, they are all broadly tuned, but our brain somehow can decode very precise information when you look at the population of active cells. So. In that paper, we thought, why do we have this, you know, redundancy in the co in the spatial coding? Some cells that are kind of have discrete firing or, or circumscribed firing, and then broadly tuned cells that only when they are all active together can provide precise information about the space. Mm -hmm. And we came, we did some modeling in that paper um, to show that uh, the brain is constantly. Uh, trying to minimize interference, right? And um, so the dorsal hippocampus is very good at minimizing interfere, interference, but as you move to the ventral area, the ventral area may be much better to induce generalized responses that are also important when you are navigating yeah. in a space. And the brain has to have a balance between that process of interference and generalization, and they have to happen at the same time. If you, I mean, when we are navigating in a space, we have to have a really clear idea of where we are in order to get to our goal, but if you happen to encounter some aspect of the environment that uh, will lead to a dead end, and then that repeats in a space, it would be wise if you learn to avoid taking those shortcuts in order to get faster to the goal. So it's both processes that have to happen at the same time in order to maximize the efficiency in which you move in an environment. So I, I don't know, we came up with that idea and I have to keep exploring it further. 
yeah. in relation to the ventral hippocampus. But I think that this differential coding has a purpose for navigation that allows us to deal with those problems. And perhaps because I have been focusing either recording from retrosplenian or recording from hippocampus, maybe if I were able to record from all these brain regions simultaneously, I would have a better answer of what's going on. I don't know. Next time you'll have Next that. time. <laughs> <laughs> Next time. Someday we'll have the whole thing at our hands. Um, yes. Um, but it's but intriguing. Um, that makes some sense. I usually, sometimes anyways, think of the subiculum. I mean, after CA1 as being the generalizer, where uh -huh. CA1 is more um, specific on the dorsal side. But, but maybe the ventral hippocampus should be thought of that way, not so much scale as generalizing That's in some sense. I'm reminded of yeah. Sebastian Royer's um, data on ventral hippocampus on a, a switchback pattern that the animal was moving through, and the, the ventral CA1 cells had repeating fields at analogous locations along that along that pathway, but the place, those fields themselves were hardly different than your standard dorsal CA1 place fields in terms of size. Um, so, yeah. I think good. it's very, I, I, I no, stand no, no. corrected. I find that it's I like super, your explanation much better. The ventral hippocampus <laughs> is super intriguing to me, and I have been trying to push for this idea that is involved in generalization, but I don't rule out that it's about distance as well, because having you know, broadly tuned fields uh, would be able to map larger environments much better, but I am leaning towards the generalization idea <laughs> because this is my bias. <laughs> this is my bias. So well, I, so I think, you know, what's when it, when it comes to discriminating versus generalizing, you come in as the experimenter and say, oh, I can take this population of ventral hippocampal cells and tell you precisely where the where the animal is, right? Well, you've, you've drawn some threshold for what constitutes this, a, the same or a different pattern. That's, it's in the eye of the beholder. That's the eye of the experimenter Correct. at that point. Whereas if you just drop your threshold for what constitutes the same versus different, you say, oh, well, that's the same firing pattern, right? And now you do just have a mapping over the, the same mapping over an entire space. It's all how the, but that's really what we don't know a whole heck of a lot about, right? We get this, this is what it's bizarre, all, yeah, it's what it's happens to, to this signal in the brain, right? Yeah. Not what happens to this signal on my computer. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, of course. Yeah. But it's also very hard because when you go ventral, um, so if it's true like they act, say, as place cells, very large scale, now you need a very, 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 very large environment in order to record. It becomes like, it goes up with the square of, uh, square of two, right? So basically, you just, it just becomes impossible to experiment. So if you have a smaller environment, just say that that's a big place field, then it's either gonna cover the entire environment, fires everywhere, or it's not going to cover anything and it doesn't fire anywhere, or maybe, you know, it fires half of the place and then it becomes very difficult to say, is this a contextual signal, you know, versus a spatial signal? Because it, it might be a spatial signal that looks like a contextual signal because when, 
we're looking at a small environment and now you get it. Place, now you say places are either fire or don't fire everywhere versus, or it could be the other way around, it's contextual and now we have a hard time kind of measuring the space. So it's, it's really, it's hard experimentally, like we're leaving, we're getting to a point in which, yes, you start seeing concretely, experimentally, this divergence between, okay, how the brain reads out things and what you need to do in order to read out these things and make them into a rate map or whatever so that you can make sense of it. And at that point, you almost get to the point where it doesn't even, it's just, the, the question has to change. It can't be the same question because otherwise, we don't even have a way to think about it or, this, or, or answer it right. experimentally. And I, I think if I understand it right, that's what Bazaki was trying to yeah. emphasize a little bit in that latest book of his, the Inside Out. Yeah. Uh, was. Yeah, he yeah he elaborates a lot on that, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, neuroscience has this tendency to to look at the, look at everything as an input and see oh, how the activity maps onto the to the input as opposed to saying, oh, okay, well, here's this activity. Mm -hmm. What happens down the line? Right. Um, which is a little harder and yeah. less fun, I guess. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> we all love our <laughs> maps when we map out the locational firing of neurons and you get these cool patterns and everything. It's very enticing. They are so beautiful. They are. I yeah. still love when I see a good cell. It's so wonderful to when see. When you get the great map location. over grid cells, something. <laughs> so when he shows up, you run there, just, just get that exact zagon. It's like, I don't know, <laughs> something about it. Yeah. Hey, well, this has gone on. I think this is our, our winner for the official longest. I have the heart to stop you guys. This is great. Thank you for joining us, Doug Nitz. Mm -hmm. um, this has been Thank you. Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks, guys. Mm -hmm.